If you're visiting with us, we're thankful to have you. We've been um, looking at uh, what happens as we gather together in our assembly. We're going to continue that uh, this morning. So you want to make sure that you have your Bibles open to the 14th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. We probably all have a checklist, whether we've verbalized it or formally put it together. If someone were to ask us the question, how was the assembly this morning? And for all of us, there's a question that may be the primary question for us that we refer to to answer that question. For some, it might be the question, did it focus enough on God and give Him glory? For others, it might be, did we properly follow the New Testament pattern? Others might say, did it help me feel closer to God? And others might say, did it build up those who were present? Our sermon this morning is going to be looking at this question specifically through the context of the Corinthian church, how Paul understands it, and how he's trying to correct this congregation's misunderstanding. And so I want you to imagine that you were to visit the church in Corinth. And I don't find it hard to believe that one of the first people you might meet is a man named Stephanus. And as you see on his name tag, he has this thing written on it that you don't understand, Namuna Nemunatikos. And so you ask him, what does that mean? And it says it means spiritual. I am one of the people in this church who has been designated and understood as one of the spiritual people here. Well, you've never been to a church before where people that brazenly publicize their spirituality. And so you ask, well, what does that mean? How does one become a spiritual person? And says, oh, that's reserved for those of us who speak in tongues. We are the spiritual ones. And so as you sit down, as you're part of what's happening in church, these spiritual ones, they get up and they speak in tongues, and you have no idea what's going on. They look like whatever they're doing, it's really connecting them to God, but for you, it's absolutely confusing. Church ends and they have the biggest smile like it was the most significant thing happened, and you look like you're just a deer caught in the headlights. And a few weeks later, you run into a guy named Paul, and you're telling Paul about your experience there in Corinth. Is this how things are supposed to be happening when the church comes together? And Paul begins to sit down, and he writes a letter in response to that church in Corinth. And in this letter, the theme of what is spiritual keeps popping up. In chapter 2, verse 13, Paul reminds them that he is teaching things taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. And I can imagine Stephanus, you know, perking up and saying, Oh, this is a letter to those of us who are spiritual. Well, you guys step aside and let me understand and read this. But then in 3.1, Paul says, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather people of the flesh as infants. And so those, it seems, though, whoever is calling themselves spiritual in this congregation, Paul does not identify them. In fact, he says, you may claim to be spiritual, and I wish I could address you as such, but no, instead you are of the flesh. And we get to the place where Paul directly begins to address it in chapter 12, verse 1, where what Paul writes is now concerning the spiritual. What yours might say spiritual gifts, but the language here Paul uses is simply now concerning the spiritual. And it seems that there's one particular group has elevated themselves above all others. They look down at others in the church and they say, well, your body part is not nearly as important as this. I don't have need of you 
to which Paul corrects that notion of thinking. And then in the 13th chapter, Paul shows them a more excellent, the most excellent expression of one's spirituality, love. The spiritual, in fact, are those who love, not those who perform certain gifts in certain ways. It is a love that Paul says it is not envious, it is not boastful, it is not arrogant, and it is not rude. The very way that it seems some who claim to be spiritual were conducting themselves. And it's not until the 14th chapter that we find out the very thing that the church viewed as most spiritual. Those who would speak in tongues. And so the question for us becomes, why would tongue speaking be so important in the congregation at Corinth? It seems that they have prioritized individual relationships with God in the assembly. In other words, they believe that the purpose of worship was to help the individual foster a deeper connection with God, and tongues became a means to that end. Now, there's an awful lot that I wish I could say about contemporary application of tongues and all of that sort of thing, and let me just simply say we don't have time. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at this congregation in this context and what tongues meant and what Paul addresses there. But what Paul does say helps us to understand some things about tongues. In chapter 14, verse 2, Paul clearly points out these are directed at God. God is the audience of the tongue speaking. The second thing he says, others do not understand them. This is in, uh, in verse 2 also. Others do not understand them since they are speaking mysteries in the Spirit. So they are speaking to God in such a way that those who are observing what is happening, they are not understanding what is going on. Paul summarizes these two elements in chapter 14, verse 28. says, they speak to themselves and to God. The third thing he says is, it builds up the individual. This, this, whatever is happening with these speaking in tongues, the individual who does it, they are feeling built up. They are feeling energized and reinvigorated by this process of speaking in tongues. Paul also says that one pray, when one prays in a tongue, one prays in the spirit, but the mind is unproductive. And so it is some sort of an experience. Now, you may have heard in the past that what we're talking about here is the same thing as Acts 2. But I think if you look closely, something very different is happening here than is happening in Acts 2. In Acts 2, the tongues were addressed to others, were they not? Not addressed to God. And in Acts 2, they were in fact mentioned as they were understandable. And here Paul says these tongues are not understandable because they are the tongues that are in the mysteries of God. And so there's much I don't understand about what's happening with tongues, but it seems that Paul is speaking positively about what tongues can do in a person's direct worship of God. It does connect that person to God. The individual is strengthened as they continue the journey of faith. But Paul's main point is because tongues are an individual expression of worship, if not interpreted, they belong only in private worship. So Paul's concern here isn't, oh, they don't do anything for you. They're not effective. They don't connect a person to God. His concern is this is just between you and God, and that's not something that belongs in the assembly. So Paul will say in 14.28, But if there is no one to interpret, let them be silent in the church and speak to God and to themselves. See, I think we learn that there are some spiritual things that play an important role in our private worship that are not appropriate for public assembly. 
Last week, we talked about finding a rhythm of private worship and public assembly. And now we find that there are different elements and different things that are included there. The question as to what's appropriate in private worship is different than the question what is appropriate in the public assembly. See, what I find fascinating is that Paul is not consumed by the question, does this help me feel closer to God? Because if that were Paul's predominant question, the answer would be what? Continue to speak in tongues, as long as that helps you feel connected to God. Now, we do recognize that what Paul is offering in this section is a corrective message. Paul is addressing this misuse of tongues in the assembly. And when one is offering a correction, it is often very different than simply introducing a practice. If you think about being a volleyball coach. And imagine you had these individual players who each one thought they were the absolute best on the team. And every time somebody hit the ball over, one of them would spike it right back over. And as a coach, you may offer a corrective practice. Every time the ball comes over, we're going to have counted out three hits. Not one hit, not two hits, three hits every single time. Because that's a corrective for a team that seems to be all about the individuals. But if you were coaching a team where that problem wasn't there, you might have a different advice for them. You might coach them in a different way. You might say it is always preferable to have three hits, but if it comes over and you've got the spike on the second hit, just take it. So what we need to realize is Paul is offering a corrective, and in this corrective, Paul downplays the individual connection to God, and he upbuilds or he promotes the upbuilding of the church as the primary purpose of coming together. So Paul's concern here is not, what does your relationship with God look like here? His concern is, what's happening in your relationship with the others who are part of this assembly? So our private worship is the place where these intimate encounters with God should occur. So let me ask the question, how is your private worship? Are you finding times when you are connecting with God? You are building yourself up in your relationship as you speak with God. Or is this time together, is assembly your soul worship diet? Is this the only time you feast on worship? Or do you have your own diet as something that you are a part of? Paul thinks that the worship and what happens here should be of a different nature than the worship that happens in our own private areas. I think if we are so famished from our need for worship, because humans need worship, we may come here and make this more about us and our connection with God than about the community that God is calling us to be aware of. You see, the question that dominates Paul's thought throughout 1 Corinthians is, does it build up the church? That's the purpose, at least in 1 Corinthians, of the coming together. So Paul in 14, verse 3, he promotes prophecy because those who prophesy speak to other people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The end goal we find in 14.5 is so that the church may be built up. In 14.12, Paul reminds us, so with yourselves, since you are eager for spiritual gifts, strive to excel in them for what purpose? For the building up of the church. And in 14.26, then when Paul applies these teachings, he says, What then should be done, my friends? When you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. See, Paul endorses prophecy because prophecy is an activity which builds up the group. 
rather than tongues, which is something that only builds up the individual themselves. Now, as we talk about building up the church, I want to make sure we understand correctly what Paul is emphasizing here. Because I think that there's two ways we tend to read this building up. One is through a therapy model, and the other is through what we'll call a theological model. Now, as we talk about therapy, let me be very clear about one thing. Therapy is good. Therapy is important. I've been a part of therapy. I've recommended people go to therapy. But what we're talking about here as we talk about the therapeutic mindset is a certain way that people look at the church and, in fact, look at all things. In therapy, a person will pay someone else to help them feel better about themselves. The individual paying for the therapy makes the judgment or the evaluation, is this good for me? Is this helpful for me? And so in the therapeutic model, how do I feel about this becomes the dominant question. If we took the situation of speaking in tongues and prophesying and we put the therapeutic model, how do I feel about this? How do you think the tongue speakers felt about it? This is great. I feel so encouraged. I feel built up. We need to continue it. But yet what we find is that something else is happening. Sometimes we think that the building up and the encouragement and the consolation is a therapeutic one, which is, which is me saying, how do I make you feel good? That's, that's the goal of church. I, I should just make everyone just feel good. And so when you leave church, you should have warm and fuzzy feelings. That's what it means, according to the therapy model, to be built up. Christian Smith, who has done extensive study amongst religious teens in America, has concluded that the therapy model is a dominant model for religion in America. After interviewing and surveying all these uh, American religious people, he says, what we hear from most teens is essentially that religion makes them feel good, that it serves their felt needs. So they go... They're part of things. Why? Simply because it feels good. And so is that what Paul is saying? Is Paul saying, what we do in church? I'd say, hey, what would make you feel good? Oh, that would, okay, we're going to do that because you're going to feel good if I do that. But Smith cautions as he goes on. He says, what we hardly ever heard from teens was that religion is about significantly transforming people into not what they feel like being, but what God wants them to be. You see, the theological understanding of building up offers a corrective to the therapy model. See, first of all, what does the word even mean to build up? It comes directly from this this secular world of construction, and it's applied to our religious lives. It is a term for building up our construction. It is a term for the process of growth and development in the community. So what needs to be happening is that the community needs to be growing and it needs to be developing. And so I think four things I want to offer as a theological correction to the therapeutic model. First of all, building up refers to the community, not to the individual, as the house of God. So the house is being built up, which is very different than saying you as an individual need to be built up. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. Before me is the spiritual house composed of individuals, but the concern is not for the individual, but it is concern for the house, that the entire building has the structural integrity that it needs. And I think that's important to remember because there will be times, aspects, and elements of what happens in here that may not build you as an individual up. Remember we did a a survey of worship, and guess what I found out? Not everyone has the same idea of what builds them up. Some say, when we sing a song during the Lord's table, 
that builds me up. And others say, when we do not sing songs at the Lord's table, that builds me up. How then will we build you as an individual and you as an individual up unless we talk about what's happening in the community? Some say we need more upbeat songs with more energy and more passion. And some say we need more reflective songs with deeper contemplation. Could you imagine being the leader of a congregation where their sole job was to make every individual happy? That'd be a pretty tough job. The goal is building up the community, not the individuals who make up the community. In terms of therapy, the solution is if X, Y, or Z doesn't make me feel good, I'm out. But in terms of theology... It is not a problem if I am not built up by a specific thing because love, which is the ultimate expression of spirituality, it is not self-seeking. And so I might defer or forgo my personal preference for the sake of the community. The second thing I want us to point out about Paul's language of being built up is that theologically being built up has nothing to do with feeling good but being instructed about things that are essential for our formation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Returning to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're built up in order that we can be better prepared to what? To sacrifice. That seems like a strange thing. I remember when Jerry and I first got married, I went back to my home congregation where we did a reception, and they asked me to come, us to come down front to say a few things, and I came down front, and I grabbed the microphone, and I said a few things, and then Jerry and I sat down. And afterwards, one of my cousins, a much older cousin, came up to me and said, don't ever do that again. So, don't ever do what again? He said, if you are in front of a congregation with your wife, you must hold her hand. It communicates to everyone that she's important and valuable to you, and it offers an important instruction for the group. Now, I will tell you, I didn't feel warm and fuzzy when he told me that. But was that a building? It, it was an instruction that I think was helpful and useful for me. It formed me into something, though through perhaps a less pleasant experience. So being built up is the goal, not, being, uh, not feeling good. Because sometimes what happens in worship may need to confront our idols. It may need to confront things that are not in line with God's way. In fact, the second word you have building up in Paul in 14.3 talks about encouraging. The very definition of encouraging is emboldening someone in the course of action that is right. That's very different than sometimes what we mean by encouraging. It is to embolden someone, to move in the direction that is right. That's what we do when we encourage one another. We do whatever is helpful to help them look more like Jesus. The third thing that we recognize when it comes to this theological correction is that those who are spiritual should be doing things that build up the church. The therapeutic model reverses that. The building up is saying that I should be the one who is built up. So when I go to therapy, I judge the effectiveness of it based on how it impacts me and how it affects me. How many of you, if you went to therapy and you paid $100 for a one-hour session and the therapist said, can you help me with something? I'm really struggling with this. And you spent the whole time telling them what they needed to do. How many of you would ask for your money back at the end of that hour? Because we have this expectation, this is for me. But one thing we recognize is we go, Paul says, those who are spiritual should build up the church. The question is not, am I being built up? The question is, am I building others up? 
See, therapy is about being a recipient of the efforts of others, while biblical building up is about pouring yourself into the lives of others. And yes, there will be times that you need to be built up. There will be times that you are the very, the very subject of the, of the focus of the building up because you need that encouragement. But our primary posture is towards building each other up. And the fourth thing is that all of the building up, the encouraging, the consoling, it needs to be grounded in the truth of what God did through Jesus by his spirit. Sometimes the short-term goal of therapy is just simply to make you feel good, and I will say whatever I need to say about the human spirit and the human potential. I might even say something to you like, you can do anything, because I know that will help to encourage you and to make you feel good. But that sort of a statement is not based on eternal truth. The building up that Paul talks about is based on a very specific message. That's why Paul emphasizes so much the need for things to be understandable. What happens in worship needs to be intelligible. And it also needs to be orderly so that people can hear the message that needs to be heard. Both Christians and non-Christians. 1 Corinthians 14, 6, it says, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues... How will I benefit you unless I speak to you in some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Paul is here prioritizing four different ways about making the gospel known and making it heard. So our coming together is an opportunity to teach in many different avenues and facets about what God has done through Jesus Christ by his spirit. And the word becomes then the source of the message and God himself becomes the source of what we encourage one another with. And so what we're going to do is we're going to practice for just a moment this discipline. There's two texts in the book of Thessalonians where Paul uses this exact model with the congregation. So first let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. It says, For since we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so through Jesus who God will bring with him those who have died. And then Paul goes on later and says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So we're given the content about which we are to offer an encouragement. And so I'm going to ask you, and I know this is not something that we normally do, but in just a brief snippet, share why this is an encouraging text to you, that Jesus Christ died and rose again, so that through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. Why is that encouraging to you? It gives hope. It shows us that God is a promise keeper. God is a promise keeper. Death doesn't mean what we think it means. What's that? Death doesn't mean what we think it means. Yeah. He wants us to come to know him. That I should be sharing. That I should be sharing. So we have, we have this, this text. And if we're going to build one up and encourage one another, the source of our encouragement and building up is the very text that God has given us. We see this again in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, who died for us, and so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. And then Paul will then go on to say, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, as indeed you already are doing. How is this passage to be an encouragement to us as the body of the people of God? It makes us better people. 
God has a plan for us. God has a plan for us. We can share eternity with God. We, share, we can share eternity with God. So isn't it good to know? And this will be our word of encouragement. Amen. Isn't it good to know that God's plan for us is not wrath? It's not God's hope. That's not God's end desire. God, what is it that you long for? What is it that you wish for from all people? And the answer to that is salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God is hoping for. That's what God is wishing for. That's what God is longing for. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, one wonders what the father's been up to. But one thing is certain, when the son comes home, the father is ready to receive him. Because the father is not destined the son for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. My prayer is that by you being here today, you've been encouraged. Because we have been destined not for wrath, but for salvation. If you wonder what that looks like in your life, if you want to explore what that's about another way we encourage you is that some of us will be in the back uh, as we sing the next song and we'll be an encouragement to you we will build you up that that may mean saying something that's hard sometimes it means saying i need help outside of myself i will not solve my sin problem but god can through jesus christ and by his spirit and so if you need further encouragement along those lines, uh, as we sing the next song, I'd invite you to come to the back. But before we do that, I'd like to offer a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And as we enter into the world, may we go by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together and sing.